Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There have been lots and lots of things that I'm sure you've heard in recent weeks about China's role in what we are going through right now in this whole coronavirus situation and the level of truthfulness that China has been giving when answering to the world about what it did or didn't do. Uh, You've probably heard about information that China perhaps delayed containment for as long as three or four weeks that could have maybe helped or maybe not. Uh, You've probably heard about the doctor or doctors who were trying to warn the world about coronavirus and then were forced apparently to recant their statements. Uh, We have heard about the authoritarian Chinese regime suggesting that perhaps coronavirus was actually planted in China by the U.S. as a kind of biological weapon. We've now heard China say that in the last few days it has zero new cases. The lockdown of Wuhan today was lifted, suggesting that everything is now hunky-dory. Question is, how much do you believe, considering not the Chinese people, but considering the Chinese government. Dr. Wesley Wark is a national security policy expert who teaches at the University of Ottawa. He joins us now. Wesley, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, John. Uh, How much uh, of the, uh, I mean, it's a very broad question, but how much of the information coming out of China right now are you accepting as fact? Um, I think everything that comes out of China in terms of information has to be looked at, at skeptically. And I think there are a couple of things that, that we do know uh, about the Chinese response. I mean, they were the country first hit, of course, by, by COVID-19 and were no better prepared for it than anybody else. Uh, but the reality is that the Chinese political authorities, that's the Chinese Communist Party, were very slow to react and admit uh, that a serious pandemic was underway in, in Wuhan and in the surrounding province. And that slowness wasn't the result of any lack of scientific or medical expertise, quite the opposite, but just because uh, the bureaucracy didn't work well and the Chinese political authorities at the highest level were clearly very concerned about the, the political impact of, of a pandemic on regime stability in China. So certainly the, the Chinese political authorities didn't respond well to the, the early outbreak. There are ongoing questions uh, about how truthful Chinese reporting of the impact of the uh, pandemic has been in China, particularly in terms of not just rates of infection, but in terms of death rates, which do appear to have been underreported. So there have have been problems in China, and that impacts on us in Canada and all kinds of other countries because the way we've set up a global health surveillance system uh, is that we rely on timely and truthful reporting from states that that you know are hit by pandemics. That reporting is meant to come to the World Health Organization, which is a UN body, of course, and the World Health Organization then filters and streams that information to countries around the world. And it is all open source information. That is, it's supplied by nation states or it's otherwise available publicly. And and we sit and wait in receipt of that and hope that that it's truthful. The problem with that system is that it it should be supplemented by other other sources of information, including intelligence. Uh, And that's what the American system does, but it's not what Canada does. So we are entirely reliant on that open system of reporting and on a trust relationship with whatever country in the world might be hit by a pandemic, 
uh, now or next. And we've heard hundreds of times in the last number of weeks from Canadian authorities referencing the World Health Organization. This is the uh, this seems to be the 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 center of all information. All information flows from here. It seems anyway. Uh, and we seem to be accepting so much of it almost blindly, even as the, the, the World Health Organization compliments China on its response to this, which I think a lot of people are saying, really? I, I mean, it almost is beginning to sound less health organization and in some ways more political organization. Well, I, there's certainly a lot of criticism that the WHO is under uh, at the moment, including from uh, the Trump administration. And, and there was a press conference just yesterday in which um, President Trump uh, you know, claimed that uh, the WHO was China-centric and he was thinking about pulling American funding for it altogether. And, you know, I think we, we have to be a little bit cautious about that approach. The World Health Organization is at the center of this global surveillance system that we set up and that Canada championed, in fact. And, and it is just meant to be a clearinghouse for information that comes to it from, from nation states. The whole problem with this system, which I don't think we've yet grasped in Canada, but it is beginning to be a big story in the United States, is when you have these global pandemics that hit in certain countries, particularly authoritarian countries, which may be very sensitive about their regime control, you cannot count on, you know, whether it's China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, all of them have had problems in terms of truthful reporting about COVID-19's impact. You can't count alone on those regimes stepping up and giving you full access to all the information. You have to have a, a separate stream of information or intelligence that you can apply to the known facts and say, yes, that reporting is truthful, or no, there are gaps in that reporting, and here's what we know from other sources. So you have to have open source information, and you have to have what we might call the secret information. And Canada has not had the secret information. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting about our response or how much we should be trusting China. And and just again, and this is obvious, I think, I don't think this even needs to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. We're not talking about the Chinese people, right? This is not about some being racist somehow. This is not talking about whether you trust Chinese people. This is the authoritarian Chinese governmental regime that we're talking about, because there has been some confusion seemingly about that. People who have raised questions have been accused of being racist. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, Dr. Wesley Wark is still with us, national security policy expert who teaches at the University of Ottawa. And Dr. Wark, just before the break, you were, you were mentioning some of the ways that Again, authoritarian regimes, we may want to be somewhat skeptical, at least don't just dive in with both feet. Uh, has our own government, or at least some arms of our government, been a little naive to this? And we've had situations where our health minister has seemingly accepted the numbers coming out of China wholeheartedly and saying, if you don't believe them, you're a conspiracy theorist. Yes, that was a rather extraordinary statement, I thought, that the health minister, Patty Hayes had made in response to a, a journalist's question uh, as to whether uh, the Chinese figures were accurate, and, and she did uh, accuse uh, that journalist in a in a press conference of peddling conspiracy theories. I, I don't think that's the, that's the right approach. I don't think we want to embrace conspiracy theories, but but we do have to realize uh, the reality of the system that we've created for ourselves and its limitations. And, and again, Scott. The problem is that uh, the system is based on on trust and truthful reporting, and we can't always assume 
that that trust is going to operate or truthful reporting is going to come out of, of certain regimes who may well feel that their entire political future is at stake in terms of how they handle a, a crisis. Uh, you know, the, the thing that people perhaps don't understand about authoritarian regimes is that they can be, on one hand, sort of strongman regimes, and at the same time, extraordinarily sensitive about the possibility of uh, them losing their grip on power. And I, I think that is, to a degree, true of China, it's true of, of Russia, it's true of other countries that we could name, North Korea, Iran, come to mind. And so, you know, when, when a pandemic uh, unfortunately hits one of those countries, as opposed to, say, a democratic country somewhere in the world, or one less authoritarian in its, in its makeup, then, then you have to, uh, you have to have an ability to be skeptical about the information, uh, and to double check it. There, there's an old saying in arms control treaties, uh, globally that you trust, but verify. Right. And that's really, I think, at the, the nub of this. It, it's, it doesn't serve anybody's interest to go around saying to China or anybody else that people are simply lying about this. We're all kind of struggling with this, and nobody has found a perfect response or a perfect solution. But you do have to verify. And the other, the other aspect of this uh, issue, which is, I think, very important to understand, is that, that um, all of the major countries who have been badly impacted by COVID-19 have a stake in what we might call the information war going forward. That by that I mean simply that that every country that you can imagine is going to want to portray itself in the best light in the global arena, saying we did the best job, and other countries fell down. And you know that this will happen, but I think we have to be mindful that it may not be a very fruitful uh, form of information war that we're that we're in the midst of. And and I think you know an interesting example of this is that that when it was discovered that. The Chinese state and indeed uh, private companies based in, in China, like Huawei, uh, are providing a lot of um, medical equipment to Canada. You know, questions were raised about um, you know whether it was was right for Canada to accept that kind of uh, assistance. So you know, this is this is I think muddling things terrifically. There is that a, assistance. Yeah, there is a political it. element that cannot be un- untangled from what's going on with the rest of the world. No, that's right. And, and what I'm saying is that um, we need to be in a position to, to understand the kind of information warfare campaigns that various countries are are um, are suggesting, and the and the, the Chinese information campaign is, I think, easily easy to identify at the moment. And that is simply to suggest that China, in its overall handling of COVID-19, has proven the value of its authoritarian regime. It has a good model. It was able to do this extraordinary kind of authoritarian lockdown of, of uh, Wuhan and Hublai province. It seems to be emerging from, from the COVID-19 crisis fairly quickly, while other countries in the West are, are still struggling with its impact. You know, so that's their message going, going to be their message going forward to the world. It's not one that's going to kind of land on Canadian ears with any persuasiveness, but it will be a message to the world. And it will be accompanied by signs of Chinese scientific and medical capabilities and production uh, capabilities. 
yeah, as, they, it, as they try to provide this assistance. And it's and we unfortunately we have to run, but it, yeah, it, and it's a great story, I suppose, if you're one of the members of the authoritarian Chinese government saying, "Look how well we've done this. Our regime works better to halt to pull this in to control this." But that still requires a belief that there are no more cases or that they have controlled it there. And we just, we can't, I don't know that we can really know that, unfortunately. Dr. Warf, no, I, I, sorry, again, we got to, we, we have to be, sure. No, we, we have to run. I apologize. I would love to have you on for much, much longer because you have a lot to say. I really sure. appreciate you doing this today. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, great to chat. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, bye. Uh, that, that, that is unfortunately the point that you can say, hey, look how well China did. We have no idea how well China did. And unfortunately, any Canadian expert, leader, governmental official, anyone else who points to China and says, hey, they're starting to get it under control, I would argue very naive. We have no idea. And citing China's successes seems just unfortunately ridiculous and entirely silly. We don't know a thing. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about airplanes, as it turns out. Uh, So much of what we are doing these days, I don't have to tell you this, has slowed down or stopped altogether. Restaurants, nope. Theaters, nope. Shopping, not really. Not like we have in the past. Just go in and get the essentials and get out and get the stink eye from everybody who, as soon as you step out your door anyway. But there still is stuff that has to get around the country. We do still have medical equipment, medical supplies, food, all kinds of stuff uh, that has to get into the country and then get around the country. And there is something that I did not realize until yesterday. I heard this in a conversation. Hamilton right now is the busiest cargo airport in the country. Had no idea. Don't know why I didn't think of that. Had no idea. Kathy Puckering is the president and CEO of Hamilton International Airport. She joins me now. Kathy, how are you today? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I, I'm doing fine, thanks. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, we're we're all hanging in together. Um, it's a weird thing, though, about airports. When I started to think about this, and when this conversation came up, most of us, and I'm included in this, most of us generally think of airports as passenger hubs, as places where you go to get on a plane and fly somewhere. We don't often think about the cargo side of this. Oh, uh, you're you're correct, and um, it's interesting because. Hamilton Airport has had, you know, cargo before my time, you know, before I'm trying to think when we started managing the airport for the owner, the city of Hamilton, it was back in 1996 and cargo was flying then. So um, our airport is Canada's largest overnight express cargo airport. Uh, And what that means is we have dedicated cargo aircraft. That's all they do is carry goods that travel. You know, that's what you're seeing in the skies every night. And you know, at our airport, it complements before COVID-19, the passenger activity that tended to fly uh, during the day. So it's it's a huge success story, and it's always been here. Yeah, I, I got to think the last time I probably thought about a cargo airliner might have been the first scene of the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, and that didn't go so well. So we'll, <laughs> we won't mention that one again. Um, but so uh, relatively speaking, you say it's a great success story. Um how busy is busy then? In, in human terms, that people can understand, how busy is Hamilton Airport right now? Well, if we just uh, if we talk a bit about before COVID nineteen, the landings that actually happened at the airport for the past couple of years have pretty much been equal passenger and cargo. 
Um, but Cargo Airport, they, you know, you know, for lack of a better phrase, kind of slip under the radar, right? Because the plane just lands and the goods move on and off that aircraft. And then they travel to and from the airport via transport trucks. And they're able to tap into, you know, the benefits that Hamilton has with access to all the main highways. And our proximity into key markets makes it makes it a huge opportunity and a strategic advantage for our partners to actually be located in Hamilton, where it's easier to get to. You know, our fees and charges are are lower than competitor airports, and we're not congested. Um, so 24/7, when they want to, they can basically come and go, and it allows them to have a lot of flexibility in their business. Uh, yeah, I mean, geography obviously is a big part of this. I remember years ago, and I'm sure this is long before you ever were born, probably, Kathy, but uh, when uh, during the early 90s when the Blue Jays were you know, winning World Series, their plane, their charter used to fly into Hamilton rather than Toronto and land and, and drive there because it was a great, easily accessible airport. Yes, and you know, today I, I know we're talking a lot about the movement of people and goods, but you know, equally important to the city is the fact that we're able to diversify. So you've got the cargo operations, you've got the passenger operations, you've got what could be charter operations, um, uh, general aviation or general cargo that comes in just when it needs to and it's not scheduled. We've got, you know, business partners that are on the premise that actually maintain aircraft. Um, so they're not actually flying people or goods, but they're making sure those aircraft can. We've got what's called an FBO or fixed base operators that actually provide those charter service, smaller business executive jets and and that type of business, you will see, you know, those sports teams or dignitaries, um, you know, musicians that want to, again, come in quietly, you know, land that plane and get in a limousine and get where they need to go. They can do that fairly easily in Hamilton. Do we do we have at this point in Hamilton any commercial passenger planes that are still flying out of here at this present moment? So uh, we have, we still do, yes. Uh, what we've seen over the past four weeks is, you know, unfortunately the same as every airport sure. uh, around the world, just pretty much rapid declines. Uh, at this point, I think we have, um, starting in next week, I think we've got six swoop flights that are still flying per week and uh, three to four WestJet flights. So what they're trying to do is just keep some product in the market. Um, definitely our air passenger air carrier partners are promoting the fact that people need to be staying at home and, and this is not the time to travel. However, some people actually have to and have no choice. So how do they provide a very, you know, bare bones, program out of Hamilton that will allow them to get coast to coast. It's not as easy as it used to be um, in regards to the, the direct flights are, are, are going away. You might have to connect the dots along the country. And obviously the physical distancing and the safety of their passengers, our passengers, is of the utmost importance. So um, making sure that people are fit to travel and that they're practicing, you know, that physical distancing in the airport. It's a lot more I complicated right now. It is, and, and this might be a sign of the times as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
we're talking about our airport, which as it turns out, as everything else seems to be shutting down and passenger flights are dropping off and getting less frequent, our airport here in Hamilton doing very well. The busiest cargo airport right now in the country. Kathy Puckering, who uh, we just lost. So we will get her back in just one second, who's the president and CEO of Hamilton International Airport is with us. She'll be back in just a second. But yeah, I had no idea about this. That this is an uh, uh, we're looking for success stories these days. We're looking for things that are good news. Well, here's a good news one. While everything else seems to be shutting down around us, here's an area of the city that is in high gear that is working with more volume than it has in a long, long time, maybe ever. That's a good news story. Let me try this again with. Okay, well, we're uh, we're making Kathy now think that we don't like her because we just lost her again. We'll try again. But this is a good news story that when so many other places don't have work, I, I can't even imagine because I, I can see the planes coming in at night and I always just assumed they were passenger jets, passenger planes. Nope, they are, um, they are cargo and it means that stuff is going all over the country and it is all coming out of here. Let's try this one more time. There we go. Kathy, how are you? You're back. I'm, I'm back. Oh, man. You, you, I, I canceled you as often as some people are getting canceled on flights these days. Um, with all this stuff that is coming through Hamilton, what is coming through Hamilton right now? What kind of cargo are we talking about that's coming in here? Okay, so um, first of all, I just I want to mention something or stress something that we have always been, you know, for at least the last 10 years, Canada's largest overnight express cargo airport. Okay. Um, so it's it's not just what's happening today. Um, but what is happening today is, is a little unique. So we are seeing, um, and our partners, some, you, you know, reductions in the business to business and, and, and that type of goods as businesses are closing down and, you know, practicing the um, physical distancing and staying at home. But what we are seeing and what has actually been a trend in our business for, for, for a few years now is the, you know, the advancement of the e-commerce and, and actually tapping into the global supply chains and, so what we're seeing right now is increases in those essential services that are needed for the medical industry. Um, so the masks and the COVID test kits and um, medical scrubs um, for the healthcare industry, the ventilators, um, those supplies that are really going into the medical um, industry. Um, I was talking to one of our partners this morning and they even mentioned, you know, clinical trials for the vaccine. Um, and what that's doing is just, you know, adding more of that capacity that traveled before in addition to, you know, the high value goods that like to fly by air, you know, what people are actually buying, you know, for their own uh, consumables and, and what we were known for, you know, before, in addition to that, it was always pharma, but the perishables and floral and, you know, what, what has shrunk is the, the automotive and the manufacturing components right now. So that's uh, taking a bit of a lull. I know that um, there have been some flights coming and going from China with supplies on them. What happens with the planes that are coming here from China and the people who are on those planes when they get here? So the employees. So one of the things that, you know, is absolutely critical right now in the supply chain, which is vital for this whole network of the movement of goods and trade to continue, is that the people either in the sort facilities or in those aircraft or on the trucks that are delivering the packages to your door, that they're safe, that they're protected, 
that they're following the same protocols that are in place that, you know, we've been hearing a lot about right now in the medical uh, industry. They are essential workers and they're frontline. Um, some of the changes you might have seen is your delivery people now, they're just, you know, ringing the doorbell and, and leaving. You're, you're not signing mm-hmm. for, your, for your shipments anymore because they have to make sure that these people stay, stay safe. And, you know, if one person gets ill, you know, what does that do to, say, a fulfillment center or to the sort facility or to the people that were actually in that plane? So one one person that, you know, if unfortunately they do contract COVID-19, they could take out, you know, half a dozen or a dozen other people that are absolutely critical right now in moving these goods daytime you know and at night so does everybody who comes back here whether it's a pilot or a an employee who's on a plane from china do they have to immediately go into a 14-day quarantine um i have never had that question asked of me scott so i don't actually know the answer because you'll run out of pilots pretty Um, quickly if that was the i mean honestly if every pilot who flies there has to then go for 14 days off you're going to run out of pilots Yeah, but they're not interacting the same way that people that are flying commercially, the passengers that were um, having to follow those same restrictions. So what I know is like the health checks that are being done, you know, those people are practicing the proper physical distancing in in that aircraft, in those sort facilities. It's much different than as if they were a passenger that was traveling through, you know, an air terminal building and getting on and sitting in you know, a passenger aircraft where it's, well, pre-COVID-19, it was impossible to actually practice that that uh, six feet or two meter Mm -hmm. physical distancing. Now I think they can because there's just not that many people getting on the plane. Kathy Buckering, we have to. I have to jump in, unfortunately, because we are f- just completely out of time. I wish we had a lot more time to talk. But uh, Kathy Buckering, President and CEO of Hamilton International Airport, not just today, but for a long time now, the busiest cargo airport in this country. Kathy, thanks for taking the time to do this today. Well, thank you, Scott. And I just quickly want to thank everybody that's currently, you know, working very hard. All our government agencies, our frontline workers that are making sure that Canadians continue to have what they need to to get through this crisis and together, you know, we will do this. This too will pass. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.